Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, Heart of Healthcare listeners. I'm your host, Hallie Teko. Today, I wanted to share a special Ask Me Anything session that I did with two Johns Hopkins students who are part of a student-led venture firm called A-Level Capital. They have their own podcast, A-Level Capital Podcast. They asked me about digital health, startups, innovation, women's health, and career development. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's so great to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Perfect. Well, we have a lot to cover in this episode. You've already accomplished so, so much, especially in the digital health space. Before we dive in, though, I just love to start with a little bit of background on yourself, maybe an overview of all of your experiences in digital health so far. And I know there are many. I know. <laughs> yeah. So when um, when I was in college and undergrad, I was really interested in tech and healthcare and ended up, so I went to school at Case Western undergrad at Case Western in Cleveland, Ohio. And I wanted to, I had grown up in Northeast Ohio, first gen college student, didn't really, didn't really realize how big the world was until I went to college. And then by the time I was a senior, I was like, I want to go as far away from Cleveland, Ohio as possible. And so I applied to tech and healthcare jobs across the country. And honestly, I just took the job that was like, the farthest away that was like the most interesting to me. So I ended up in a finance rotational program at Intel. I was a finance major in undergrad and thought it was a really great way to kind of build my skill set, meet people in in tech. I mean, this was 2006. So Intel wasn't, I mean, it, it was a it was a large company then, but it wasn't like as stodgy as it is now, I guess. And 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 had a really great first job experience. I I really enjoyed you know what I was working on and really um, loved the tech angle and the innovation angle of the work that I was doing. But really felt like the purpose was missing. I wasn't super excited about semiconductors, and so I and I had I had done a couple of healthcare internships in undergrad. So. I, I knew that healthcare was an area where where I, I could be passionate about the subject matter and uh, I could make a difference at the same time. And so I I figured the best kind of way for me to tie those interests together would be to to go to business school, kind of give myself a reset, get a different degree, and you know was fortunate to get into Harvard Business School where I did just that, and I, I really tried to understand this intersection of healthcare and technology. Digital health really wasn't a term back then. There were no classes on digital health. I basically was taking like the like the cl- the healthcare classes which were more biotech or healthcare administration and then kind of the innovation classes that was 
really around kind of at the time, like web 2.0, and there was nothing at this intersection. And so I did a couple of independent studies including one with Bob Higgins, who was a longtime healthcare investor at Highland Capital, which was kind of the first wave of healthcare innovation. And through that, kind of formed this thesis that there was about to be, or that we could support the coming together of these two different worlds. And healthcare is a ginormous part of the economy, but it's very siloed. And, and so that was really where Rock Health was born. Um, And that was the fund that I started right out of business school or during business school, really. And that was 2010, 2011. Uh, My co-founder was an MBA, MD student. And really what we wanted to do is bring people around the table that had diverse perspectives from healthcare and technology and back founders and give them, open the doors for them at these large healthcare organizations. So some of our investors were Mayo Clinic, Kaiser Permanente, McKesson, these giants that are really hard to break into. We were able to give startups kind of, you know, inside scoop. Rock Health has since grown and evolved and does a lot of great stuff, including research and events and consulting. But I left after about eight, 10 years and moved back to the East Coast and started teaching the first MBA level course on digital health. I found that I enjoyed working with students. I enjoyed evangelizing digital health and getting people excited about it. And I had been kind of guest lecturing at different universities across the U.S. And Columbia came to me and they're like, we want to double down on this. Our our students are really interested in getting into this field. This is 2015. And they're like, let's build a course around this. And so I, I built that course in 2015, started teaching that. And I still teach that once a year. Now I I used to teach kind of the semester long course. Now I do a week long block course. So it's like full time for a week, pretty intensive, but it's better with my schedule to be able to kind of get that over with in a week. Um, I continue to invest directly in digital health companies over the last like year. I've kind of shifted more to investing in the VCs that invest in those digital health companies for capacity reasons. I've also started two companies one natalist, which I started in 2018 and sold in 2021, and another co-fertility, which I helped start um, in 2022 that just launched in October. So maybe six or seven months ago. So that's that's as quickly as I can tell my story. That is quite the impressive background. Yeah. And you should consider making that business class a online course or something. I'm sure so many people would love to take that, including myself. I know. You know, I would love to do that. So if there's any university that wants um, to work with me on that, I would love to do that. I think it's we can talk a little bit more about the course later on, but it's something where um, I think students... I'm med students would benefit from this business school students, undergrad, really across um, all specialties, I think would benefit from learning more about digital health investing. I agree. And, and then you mentioned also that when you joined HBS, digital health was barely even a term. And I think that's something that we forget, you know, 10, 20 years ago, yeah. it wasn't necessarily obvious that tech had a space in healthcare. And yeah. today it's easy to forget because we've seen this <laughs> massive flow of money into the category, especially VC dollars. And we have all of these names that come to mind, digital health companies. Broadly speaking, how would you kind of describe the evolution of the relationship between tech and healthcare? Mm. And then where do you see technology really having a role in healthcare today? Yeah, great question. So, you know, when I started 
digital health wasn't a thing, but like healthcare IT was a thing. And healthcare IT was like super boring, stodgy corner of technology where a lot of it was selling into hospitals, kind of infrastructure projects, using legacy software that wasn't as innovative and cutting edge as what we were seeing in the software industry. And, and, and that really, that's really where I, I kind of, I, I don't want to dismiss like the early healthcare IT folks because they were early believers that there was room for efficiencies um, within kind of the large healthcare systems, but it wasn't about the consumer. It wasn't about the patient experience. And I think what digital health did was that, hey, you know, healthcare IT is important and there are certainly applications of, of software out there that can benefit the healthcare system from like a B2B perspective, but there also there's also this consumerization wave. And I was at HBS kind of at the tail end of Regina Hertzlinger's campaign of the consumerization of healthcare. And I think that was really a turning point for digital health because founders kind of started looking around and being like, well, why do we have to go through the healthcare system and providers? If we can bring something to the patients at a lower cost directly to them, like, let's figure this out. So I think that's kind of what's been the, the biggest change. Now, it's not easy to sell to consumers. I've invested in a lot of companies that have, have tried to do that and have done that. And I've started companies that have done that and it has its own challenges. And it certainly is much harder to sell uh, healthcare services than let's say like gaming. But you know what? Actually, one piece of my background that I forgot to share was kind of the inspiration for uh, specifically around Rock Health, which was my internship in business school at Apple. And I like, I don't want to jump around, but I do want to tell this quick story because it was a pivotal moment for me. So in business school, I got an opportunity to, to work at Apple at the App Store. The App Store at the time was a year or two old and the healthcare segment didn't exist. Um, and so they, you know, in his interview, they knew I was interested in healthcare. Um, and they brought me in to, to oversee, you know, as a 25 year old, I got to oversee the healthcare segment of the app store, um, which is kind of wild to think about now. Um, but such a cool opportunity. And I sat next to the woman who covered gaming. She, to this day is my friend last week, I was in Seoul visiting her where she lives now we were hanging out, but I was so inspired by her and the work that she was doing. And the at Apple, they say love is in the detail. And the developers that were building these gaming apps absolutely illustrated that principle of the love is in the details. They were building very cool tools using every native feature that they had in the app at the time. And I was looking around at the apps that were being submitted to healthcare and they were super janky. They were like check the box strategies that, uh, you know, like a hospital would be like, we need to have a mobile app and uh, had no, no real purpose. It didn't, it, it really felt like thrown together uh, with a minimal budget without care and love that these other segments were seeing. And that's when I was like, oh my God, healthcare is, the market for healthcare is so much bigger than the market for ads on games. Like where are the people? So anyhow, that was, I, I wanted to just share that story because at that point, I mean, we know, you know, how many me medical and healthcare apps are on the iPhone now, but at the time there really weren't a lot. And that was something that I was really inspired to, to change. You mentioned that, that it's not easy to sell to consumers. And I think in general, healthcare is not easy. There are so many different constituents, players. There are the payers, the healthcare systems, the providers, the patients, all of them with some type of different incentive system. And I think we can yeah. have basically a whole episode on healthcare delivery and go to market. But, yeah. you know, broadly speaking, healthcare delivery is 
is difficult. Um, it's fragmented. Yeah. It's complex. What do you see as some of the biggest obstacles for these digital health companies and really for progress and innovation in digital health in general? Mm. Uh, yeah. Building in healthcare is really hard. It's not for the faint of heart. Um, but I also think it's the number one opportunity to make a difference and improve human health. And so I think that having it hard brings people who are the most dedicated to that mission into the fold, which I think is really cool. I think some of the biggest obstacles right now to progress and innovation, probably, you know, mismatched, mismatched expectations amongst investors and founders. So healthcare startups, even the most successful on paper, don't look like tech. As you said, it takes longer to scale. There's more regulatory hurdles. There's a longer time horizon to build trust among stakeholders. And I think that's why we've seen a lot of healthcare investors do better in digital health than tech investors, especially new tech investors. Not, there are some really awesome tech investors that have, I think, identified a lot of digital health winners. But I think healthcare investors or those tech investors that have gotten to understand the healthcare system are better aligned with what it takes to build in this space. And then just following up on that, I think there are a lot of reasons to be a little bit pessimistic when we're looking at healthcare today. <laughs> Costs are going up. Yeah. Health outcomes aren't even that great. Last I checked, I think lifespans were even going down in the US. Hospital systems yeah. are overwhelmed. Doctors are overwhelmed. So there is a lot of reason to be pessimistic in a sense. Um, even on your LinkedIn, you know, you call yourself a healthcare optimist. <laughs> and, I, and I love that. I love the optimism. But, you know, despite these challenges, why do you continue to call yourself a healthcare Gosh. optimist? What are the bright spots? What's keeping you going in this space? <laughs> and to be honest, I, I, I am becoming less and less optimistic. Oh, no, I don't feel say like that. We I need a few the, optimists out there. I know. Like, I try to bring the energy that I had when I was the new guard. And now I'm the old guard in a lot of ways. Um, I've been working in this space for a long time. And I get now why... You know, early on, I had a lot of naysayers and they really pissed me off and they were really mean and not helpful. And there's no excuse for that. And I will never be that way. I'm committed to not doing that to newcomers in the space. But I now see that a lot of them were just tired. And <laughs> it's exhausting uh, working in a space where you're not seeing the fruits of your labor at a large macro scale. And so I, you know, I am becoming less and less optimistic when I see things like the way this country handled COVID, when I see things like the regulatory issues around women's health and reproductive justice, and it feels like this fight is very difficult. Um, and there's not a lot I can do about policy, but a lot of things that we're working towards are, are made a lot harder by bad policy. Um, so I try to stay positive and focus on some of the progress that I'm seeing, but it's happening at a snail's pace, if at all. And as I said, in some ways, like reproductive health or even going backwards, one of the things that does keep me optimistic is that I get to meet and work with the people in healthcare every day. They remain so committed to improving our healthcare system, and I really admire their dedication and tenacity. I work with a lot of providers, clinicians, NPs that are not only doing their day job of helping patients and serving patients, but are advocating on behalf of their patients and they're tired and they're exhausted and they still not only show up every day to work, but every night they're writing op-eds to get exposure to the issues. They're showing up in Congress fighting for better health um, coverage for the most vulnerable patients. And that like knowing that these people are in our corner keeps me really optimistic. 
We'll be right back after the break. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I wanted to ask another relatively broad question. Which groups do you think have benefited the most from innovation in digital health? And then who has been left Mm. behind? Mm. Who has benefited? Maybe those with generous employers, (laughs) generous large employers who are probably already likely to be healthy and have great care, but they're getting these tools covered by their work. So certainly I think the mental health tools, the behavioral health tools that these employers are covering, which I think is great, um, but obviously creates a, a, you know, who has and who has not has access to this issue. I'd also like to say that providers have benefited, although I don't know if all of them would agree with me, but today we do have better tools than ever before to help lessen administrative loads that they can focus on what they're good at, which is caring for patients. And then who is left behind? I mean, definitely low-income Americans, everyday Americans, And, um, you know, I think that's something that really hit me in like 2015, 2016. And I kind of looked around at the companies that I was investing in and recognized that they were serving the worried well in a lot of ways. And that's when I went, decided I wanted to get my MPH. I wanted to understand how not just to make money from healthcare, but to make an impact. And that's, that's my tie to Johns Hopkins had the opportunity to go to the number one public health school in the nation and really shifted my investment thesis to a double bottom line. And so, you know, I say for me now, I have to feel good about the companies that I'm investing in. And examples of these that I think are addressing those who are left behind would be City Block Health that focuses on serving low-income individuals um, who've been left behind by the traditional healthcare system. A lot of companies serving women, huge gap in the market, which I know you want to talk about a little bit later. But that was kind of, for me, a shift. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people who are deciding between an MBA and an MPH. And like, can you do both? Because I think having the lens of how can we improve the healthcare system from the public health standpoint, along with, uh, you know, understanding of business fundamentals is a valuable combination. Venture capital is commonly associated with high growth rates, with a move fast and break things mentality. Digital health, as you said, really has this human component. It impacts yeah. human lives. It impacts well-being. And so breaking things has much larger consequences mm. than if you're like a social media app, for example. It's, it's on a very different scale. Yeah. Uh, how do you think, in your experience, digital health companies should approach growth and scaling, especially when they're VC-backed and they have that pressure from venture capitalists to grow quickly? It's a great question. I will say I, I think that 
even social media companies can do more damage to public health than uh, we have previously thought. And a great example of that is around misinformation and the pandemic. And we've seen that while you know Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, they aren't healthcare companies, they certainly have an influence over public health and how people consume public health education, uh, whether it's accurate or not. I think that we need to 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 hold everyone to high standards when it comes to how our products, whether it's a healthcare product or not, if it impacts healthcare, it impacts public health, then we really need to move away from the move fast and break things and think about how human lives are, are impacted. Uh, but in terms of the question around how digital health companies should approach growth and scaling, you know, I, I know beggars can't be choosers, but I think founders need to think really carefully about who they're getting into bed with. This comes through investors, co-founders, employees, partners. You know, in healthcare, you have to go slow to go fast. Uh, and you need to be working with those who understand that prioritizing patient safety and complying with regulatory is absolutely critical. We have now a lot of case studies of bad actors, Theranos, Ubiome, Cerebral, um, where there was no transparency and accountability. And I think ensuring that you're surrounding yourself with those who are committed to the same level of care is really important. And if all uh, they care about is growth and top line at all costs, then you know I would I would stay far away from them. So I think the pandemic being a massive global public health crisis had some obviously really large impacts on the healthcare system. And I think actually one of the silver linings of the pandemic was the way in which it really significantly helped break down the barrier of adoption, a particular challenge that's unique to healthcare, where there's you know resistance from a lot of different parties involved. You know, how do you think that the pandemic has influenced the digital health space as a whole? Do you think it's going to make things easier for companies to build or you kind of think those COVID tailwinds will persist or it's just a fad? I think there's reason to believe that those tailwinds will persist and that there'll be lasting changes. Uh, you know, if you look at the data, the telehealth adoption still remains much higher than pre-pandemic levels. I think we're currently at like 15% of visits are telehealth compared to just 1% in February 2020. At the height of the pandemic, it was obviously much higher, but leveling out at 15% is an incredible improvement. And this would not have happened without the accelerant that we had. And, you know, as you said, the resistance that we faced um, before has certainly waned and we've set up procedures and, and payment protocols that enable the telehealth to have less friction. But where I worry is that, you know, we thought we have this idea that telehealth should be this great equalizer for the poor and for those who live in rural areas, but we actually haven't seen that. And in fact, patients, there was a McKinsey study that showed that patients with limited access to in-person in -person care, so those that would benefit the most from telehealth, actually have relatively fewer virtual visits as well. And so that's an area where I think we're kind of falling short on making kind of lasting change that is meaningful to everyone. I love that we could move and kind of talk a little bit about something that we touched on before, which is women's health. You know, women are one of the most underserved constituents in healthcare. Women's health mm. as a whole has historically been really underfunded, both in terms of just research, but also VC money. Can you give us the overall sense of where, you know, women's health stands today and also actually define what women's health is? I think a lot of people just mm. think that it's, you know, reproductive health or, you know, something along those lines versus actually being something much more complex. Yeah. Um, so the first question, you know, I think the last year that Rock Health published data on, you know, where we were with 
venture investment into to women's health was 2021. And at the time, uh, we found that companies specifically addressing women's needs made up just 7% of all digital health funding. And given that digital health funding was down last year and this year, I can't imagine that it's moved much at all, which is super disappointing. In terms of defining women's health, so I uh, last year, I kind of decided with one of my women's health co-conspirators, Julia Cheek, that it was time that we defined it. And so we kind of set out to be like, what the heck is the definition of women's health? And we actually wrote a piece that I, I highly recommend listening, finding the piece. It's pinned on my Instagram page, or you could just Google like defining women's health. Uh, we published it in um, the Harvard Business School blog. But the gist is, people think women's health is about just about anatomy and certainly, you know, cis females have unique biological experience, such as periods and pregnancy, uh, that we need to address. But actually, what women's health is really about is that our concerns aren't taken seriously. Our built environment, everything from air conditioning to PPE that healthcare workers wear to the crash test dummies, they're optimized for men. There are so many examples of how women are left out of clinical trials, and it puts us at a great disadvantage. And we have to rec rectify the impact of centuries of navigating this healthcare system that wasn't built for us. And that to me is what women's health is. I think, you know, underserved populations, you know, that also from the entrepreneur's perspective means there's potential alpha and that there's white space there. What do you kind of see are the largest areas of opportunity for, you know, entrepreneurs, people looking to build VCs in women's health today? Ooh, Anything in women's health, I don't feel like there's any <laughs> space within women's health that's crowded yet. So mm. I would say find an area that you're really passionate about and, you know, and give it a go. We need to. We need as much talent as, as we can get in the space. Totally. And, you know, infertility is something that, you know, you're particularly passionate about. Can you just kind of tell us, give us an overall sense of, you know, what are the scale of challenges that are facing infertility care today? Um, and, you know, why is it broken? And it's something that needs to be fixed. Oh my gosh, so many. And, you know, what it comes down to is that fertility is not considered, it is a disease. It's not considered as such by health plans. And the vast majority of people do not have coverage. I, for instance, have a lifetime maximum of $2,500 for coverage, which is you know, about half of the medications for one round of IVF. <laughs> and the majority of people that go through IVF go into debt to do so. There are not enough reproductive endocrinologists in the U.S. And those that, you know, those clinics that do exist tend to have long wait lists. So we have this growing problem, yet we're only minting maybe two or three dozen fertility doctors every year in the US. And so we have a major mismatch between supply and demand. And because of that, prices are crazy high and outcomes really aren't where they need to be. So when IVF first started, the chances of a successful outcome within one round was about 5%. Now it's about, it's a little under a third. So if you think about it, the majority of people after a very expensive, emotional, physically exhausting round of IVF, most people walk away without a baby. And so shifting to uh, a model where you're paying for outcomes is critical in this space. Otherwise, the only people that we're able to serve in with, with IVF and other, other fertility treatments are, are 
what tend to be wealthy white people. And so there's a lot of injustice in that. And I think that's something that is a huge opportunity for founders and thinking about, um, you know, what we can do even, you know, I think obviously I think a lot about egg freezing. It's one of my biggest regrets was not freezing my eggs when I was in my twenties. But I think one of the solutions is making egg freezing more accessible because if young people are able to freeze their eggs at a young age, then if they happen to be one in six couples that deal with infertility, they, you know, have a greater chance of, of having a good outcome. And I think that that number, we're one in six now. We were one in eight just two years ago. So by the time you guys are in your ready to have children in your 30s, that number might be even higher. And so the reproductive freedom that egg freezing enhances is is really exciting to me and part of what gets me super jazzed up about the work at Cofertility. Absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of egg freezing and cofertility, you recently founded a company. Tell us more about what your work is like there and what you guys are working on. Yeah. So um, I'm co-founder and chair of a new organization called Cofertility, and we help women freeze their eggs more affordably. We have two programs. We have a keep program where women can freeze their eggs. We give pass along discounts that we get from clinics and other service providers that are part of the whole process. And a big piece that we're trying to solve is the loneliness of egg freezing. I read a study that said that the experience was like very sad for women. And I thought this should be super empowering and people should feel really good about it. There, People don't have regret. The vast majority of people, it's like 90% of people don't regret freezing their eggs, but the process makes them feel like uh, a sense of shame. And I, I think that that should be the opposite. And so by having a community of other women who are freezing their eggs at the same time, that cohort community model makes the entire experience more positive and more affordable. And then we have a program called Split and qualified women uh, in that program actually get to freeze their eggs for free when they donate half of them to a family that could not otherwise conceive. So um, families that are facing infertility, gay dads, those who went through uh, cancer treatment that uh, limited their ability to have viable eggs. And so we're matching young women. I think our average age is kind of later in the late 20s, but you know, women who want to freeze their eggs and want to help another family and kind of bringing them together. And it's been, it's been really awesome to kind of see that, that business kind of establish and take off. And we've had tens of thousands of women apply uh, to join us, which is great. It really shows that there's um, an appetite and more awareness around egg freezing. And in fact, in 2021, egg freezing cycles were up 46% year over year. So the data, you know, backs up that this is something that is becoming more common and hopefully that will also kind of bring down the stigma and any sort of shame that should not exist around egg freezing. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's certainly a very, very interesting model. You know, this is another broad question, but if you could kind of, you know, we talked a lot about different things in healthcare today. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing in healthcare, what would it be? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. And full disclaimer, um, I heard this question first on your podcast oh gosh, and then I yeah. stole it because I loved it. I was like, wave a magic wand. I heard that. I loved it. Yeah. I would do something about health insurance. I think that our health insurance model is is not serving us. These are like huge, enormous, pr- very profitable companies that are incentivized to deny your care. 
And so I, my magic wand would be to replicate a healthcare system that looks a little more like maybe Japan, where, and, and I think the outcomes in Japan are, you know, indicative of they're doing something right. And they have national uh, health plans, but their providers are privatized. So they still have competition. They have cutting edge care. And most importantly, they have a focus on public health and prevention. I was just there. So it's kind of like top of mind for me in Japan, but there's a lot of normalization around caring for yourself and caring for others. And so if I could wear a magic wand, I would do something about the health plans, do away with them or make them more efficient and work on our behalf. And I would create a system where people care about public health and it's not politicized. There, there are so many interesting points of conversation that we could touch on here. I know we're running short on time, so we'll have to transition to one of my favorite parts of the interview, which is the career development phase where we just ask you some questions about your career and any advice yeah. that you have for us young people. So, <laughs> you know, you mentioned at the beginning that Columbia Business School course. I'd love yeah. to learn a little bit more about that. Can you give us maybe a little teaser primer on what you're teaching there? Yeah. So, so I, I teach this course that includes students that have, some have no healthcare background, some are doctors. Um, it's kind of a mix of, of MBA and executive MBA students. And we go over some principles of digital health. I always pick themes every year. There are different themes. This year, I think we did telehealth, women's health, at-home diagnostics, and I think behavioral health. And so it's a, it's a, a tiny bit of lecturing. I don't love lecturing. I like kind of letting students, giving them the papers to read so they can learn on their own and then using the class time for discussion. But the most exciting part of the class is that the students are put into groups where they are, there are VC groups and they come up with a VC name and um, they have about four people per group. And I have real founders pitch the same exact pitch decks that they've pitched me and other investors. And I have them pitch the class. The students ask awesome questions. And then the students write up a memo if they would invest or not. And then I spend all night reading the memos and giving them feedback. It's very time intensive for me. But you see, uh, you know, throughout the term, the students kind of pick up on how to really look at these companies and what questions to ask. And it's really fun. And um, it gets great reviews because it's just different from how other classes are structured. So again, if anyone at a university wants to bring this online, I'd be happy to teach it. I, I'd love to kind of bring it outside of just Columbia, but um, I think that there's a lot of benefit. That This is how I learn best. I learn by doing. And so I wanted to kind of bring that that method of teaching to the classroom. I love that. Yeah, I will definitely be calling someone at Hopkins after this to yes. see what we can do. That would be so much fun. Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier as well that you started off as a finance major, so not very healthcare heavy. Do you have any advice for people like me? I'm an econ major. Yeah. Just interested in working in or learning more about digital health. Where is a good place to start and, and just kind of begin approaching the healthcare landscape, which is so complicated and fragmented in so many ways? I know. If you're uh, a good self-learner, I would say reading, reading papers, white papers, reading um, blog posts, reading news outlets like Stat News, which does a great job covering digital health, following folks in the space and leaders in the space on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram and consuming as much as possible. I think self-learning is a great place to start. And then 
for me too, like I, I love consuming and then digesting and then putting something back out there. So, um, you know, taking in the pieces and coming up with kind of your own take on things, I think is a really great exercise. And it also doubles on a way to kind of build your thought leadership credibility. Another question for me, you've already accomplished so much in what feels like so little time. You got your MPH, you founded Natalis, and then you had a successful exit with that company. You're an angel investor in many companies. You have a podcast. You're starting another startup. You're teaching at Columbia. So there's honestly so much and the list goes on. And you're a mom. Let's not forget about that. How do you do it all? Kind of what is your biggest source of motivation? What drives you to keep building? Mm, good question. I love work. I think that's really helpful. Uh, in my 20s, it was a very unhealthy love of work. Uh, it took me a while to realize that I was kind of doing myself a disservice and kind of the inflection point for me. I mean, I would, I would be working night and day, not because I had to, I was my own boss, right? Um, but because I loved it so much and I was so consumed and there was no, I didn't have like a job description being like, do these 10 things. And then I do those 10 things and go home. It was like, what is the world of possibility of everything that I could accomplish? And I just like drove towards that. But I also created really unhealthy boundaries for myself. I neglected relationships and my own health and, you know, had, had an inflection point of when my father had a heart attack and I didn't go home to Cleveland to see him because I had some stupid VC meeting. I don't even remember what VC it was um, that I was meeting with, but at the time it was really important, something that I couldn't cancel. And uh, fortunately my dad survived and went to cardiac rehab and has fully recovered. But I lived with that guilt of like, do I really want to be the family member where work is more important? Um, it's not like I would have lost my job had I gone home, but it really made me reflect on the values that I was, that I was living up to. And I was so focused on fixing healthcare for everyone else, but didn't put any time into my, my own relationships. And so, you know, I, I, still have that same urgency. And, you know, I've been up since 4am cranking on work and I, I love to do the work, but I also like to be healthy and I am healthy now. And I, um, I take care of myself and I, um, was, had my son almost six years ago and that really forced me into a different lifestyle, right? Like all of a sudden I, I couldn't just ignore, it's not like not going to the gym. It's like you have a human that needs fed. And, um, and that really actually helped me become um, better at boundary setting. This is our last question. And this is one that we like to ask all of our podcast guests. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? You will have naysayers. You will have rejection in your career. And one of, you know, when we were pitching Rock Health early on, I took rejection like to heart and my co-founder, Nate Gross, who went on to found Doximity, which is, you know, a now publicly traded digital health company, you know, was like, if they don't want to work with us, we don't want to work with them. Like we dodged a bullet. They don't get it. And he really helped kind of help me reframe rejection and like people will reject you. Organizations will reject you just make them regret it. <laughs> there's there's no better revenge than like proving that you were right. And not everyone is going to be on your side and you have to just learn to, to be okay with that and not dwell on it and let it kind of bring you down. That is such a great place to end the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thank you guys. This is fun. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Hallie Tecco. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.